This morning we will be in John chapter 5 predominantly, and uh, as we talk about prayers, last week our prayer was that God would give Community Bible Church a desire to pray. Uh, hopefully that is true for you this last week, that God created a stirring within you to say, I, I want to pray more, I need to be praying more. Uh, this morning will be a little different of a prayer that I've been praying for our church, and uh, we're going to continue on all the way to Easter, just some things that I feel like God's kind of put on my heart. Uh, and that we pray together as a church um, as we head into Easter together. So uh, this morning as we start off, I was preparing. I thought, you know what, when, when was the last time that I truly felt uh, this idea of helplessness was just where we're going to go today? And uh, it was interesting because I remember back, it was probably when I was casted up on three parts of my body. Uh, both thumbs and an ankle were casted at this point, and I, and I was just immobile and couldn't do anything, had to ask for help in just about every area of life. Uh, you don't realize how much you need thumbs until they're not there. And uh, everything from eating to, I mean, shaving, everything. I mean, you just couldn't, it was just weird. And, and it was a helpless feeling. And there were often times where Carrie or others would say, do you need help? And I'm like, nope, I got it. And uh, the, even to get out of the hospital, they said, you need help. And I'm like, nope, I'm getting out of here. And one of the reasons to get out of there was because the humiliation, they were going to send me to rehab like at Edwin Shaw back there, like all the, you know, elderly 80, 90-year-olds kind of doing rehab. I was going to do rehab with them. And I'm like, nope, I'm getting out of here. This ain't going to be that way. You're not going to give me a sippy cup. That's not how this is going to work. And I remember like rolling myself out of there, hopping on one foot to get out of there. They're like, you good? I'm like, I'm good. Just get me the door. And it was just, I, I've, it was the most helpless feeling in the world. And there was something in it that I was just like, why do I not like this idea of being helpless? And for you, I don't know if that was the same thing or not, if you've had a similar experience or if there was a certain part of your life where you just felt I don't know what else to do because I got nothing. It could have been in a, a doctor's prognosis. It could have been in a, a friend's news that was delivered to you. I don't know. But I think if we're all honest, there's probably a point in our life where we just felt as if we were helpless. We couldn't do anything. And those are kind of the harder moments. The, some of the lighter moments could be, you know, in a waiting room or other places where you just feel like, I just can't fix the problem. I want to fix the problem. I just can't fix the issue. And so this morning... As we enter in together, I want to kind of read a verse out of Galatians, and it's going to kind of set the tone for the story, and so that will lead us into where we're going to go from there. So Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, Paul starts off in a very unkind way. He starts off like this, are you so foolish? In other words, are you still so stupid? Uh, Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And he says it again in 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He says, if you want to talk about the Christian life, which we will today, it's a matter of helplessness rather than a feeling of, I can knock this thing out on my own. Does that make sense? So that's where we're going to be heading this morning. We're going to look at a story together, and then we're going to look at Jesus' own words in regards to this idea of feeling helpless. And here's the big prayer. I'm going to put this out in the front, and that way you can have it as we head through this, this morning, so it can kind of draw you back to the main theme. But the main idea is this. Here's the prayer that I want to pray for us this week. God, would you help us, Community Bible Church, would you help us, Would you keep us, I should say, would you keep us helplessly dependent upon you? 
big prayer all week is this, and it's heading into Easter. I pray this over us a lot right now. God, keep us helplessly dependent upon you. We're going to see why here this morning. So if you have your Bibles, John chapter 5, we're going to look at a man who was helpless, and then we're going to learn some things not from his life, but from Jesus himself, okay? So we're not going to spend a whole lot of time up front on the story of this man, but I want to give you some context. So there's a story in John chapter 5, it's verses 1 through probably about 9, that Jesus enters into uh, Jerusalem, and as he heads into Jerusalem, there's this place by the temple that's got this large overhang, and underneath this overhang was like the equivalent of like our tent cities today, right? There's all these homeless people, there's all these people that are in need of help, and somewhere along the way, they've all decided to congregate at this one place. In there were not just those who were sick, it probably could have been the outcasts, it could have been some widows in there. It was a place where everybody would meet and they would basically beg for food or money, and it was located underneath this awning. Well, Jesus makes his way in there, and as he goes into this place, he finds a man who was, in, it was an invalid for, it says invalid, for 38 years. Years. In other words, he couldn't move, he couldn't operate any of his limbs. He was kind of this, he was just stuck where he was, and he'd been stuck there for 38 years. Now, think of all the places you've been in 38 years, for those who are alive long enough for that. For those who aren't 38 years, and you're kind of like, wow, I'm not even there. Yeah, imagine your whole life you've not been able to move from one spot. You ever been to the beach? Nope. Ever been out of state? Nope. Ever been to the grocery store? Nope. Ever been in a car? Nope. Just been here for 38 years. This is where I've been. Stay put, stuck in this one place. And that's where Jesus encounters this place. He says, verse 3, in this place there lay multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And so Jesus comes into the scene and he says in verse 5 that he meets this man. And then in verse 6, Jesus has an encounter with him. And Jesus says, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said said to him, do you want to be healed? It's kind of a good general question. You 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 want to leave this place? You want to get healed? This is one of the most interesting responses, by the way. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time here, but it is an interesting response. That most people would say, yes, please, I would like to go to the grocery store because it sounds like an amazing place. Yes, I would like to go to the beach because I've never been there before. Yes, I would love it if you would heal me. But this man's response is different. This man or sick man answered him in verse 7, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. First thing the guy does is give Jesus an excuse. I would love to be healed, but I can't. It's impossible. I've been here for 38 years, and every time I get bumped out of line, and somebody else is down in the pool, and I'm stuck here for 38 years. I've tried for 38 years, to which there's a lot of different commentators that look at this passage, and they, some are really harsh on him, some are a little lighter. This morning, I'm just going to say, no matter we're harsh or we're light on this guy, the, the issue is still the same, and that is that he, he's not really doing so well, and he doesn't want to be uh, moved to the place of being healed. He's kind of making an excuse to, to get in there. And so Jesus says to him in verse 8, a beautiful statement. He says to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. Jesus doesn't worry about the pool. Jesus doesn't worry about the line. He doesn't worry about who's first, who's second. He just says, get up, take your mat, walk. Let's go. <laughs> and it's fine. It's interesting. There's three different uh, verbs there, but... Uh, all of them are, are indicating an action, right? All of them are basically saying, let's just get over this, let's go take up your mat and walk. And he's instantaneously healed in verse 9. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed 
and walked. Now, seems like a pretty amazing story because it is. But then the story takes an interesting turn in verse uh, 9, at the end of verse 9. And it's the part of the story where if you were to see it in a movie, it would be like everything else around that scene is in a blurred state. The camera zooms in on the main character. The music changes dramatically. And at some point, it probably drops off. Like the soundtrack's gone, zoomed in on this face. And here's the main thing. And it zooms in. And it's like this echoey kind of reverb to these words. Now that day was the Sabbath, 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 Sabbath. John writes it in this way and on purpose. Because he's just healed a man on the Sabbath, and we could go into a whole sermon on that. We could take a rabbit trail into the paralyzed man. We could take a rabbit trail into the teaching about helping on the Sabbath. But this morning, I want to take a detour, not look so much at the Sabbath. I want to look at Jesus' reaction to this statement of, that day was the Sabbath. Because not only was it the Sabbath, it was the most holy of Sabbaths. It was the most holy of holy Sabbaths because it was the Saturday before Passover, and it started the whole celebration. Leviticus 23 is, is, is a very detailed passage about what you're not allowed to do on this kind of day. And the, and the Pharisees around him, they take notice of this, and they take an affront to this, and they start coming after him. So verse 10, it says, So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. To which you wonder, have they been in church that long, right? Have they become that Christian? Because let's just be honest. Some of us are really good Pharisees, right? The dude just got healed for crying out loud. He's carrying his mat and he's walking around and they're like, do you realize you're breaking the law by walking on healed legs with a mat? And the guy's like, I'm walking, bro. What are you talking about? Mad, the whole thing. And they're mad because he's breaking the law. Do you realize that guy wore shorts in church? Can you believe it? That guy? And he read scripture? (gasps) Too much. The Pharisees react to this healing on the Sabbath in a very pitiful way. And later, Jesus meets the paralytic and the Pharisees at the temple in verse 17. But Jesus answered them. He says, here's his response to this guy being healed. Jesus says, he answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. (laughs) I know that's kind of weird to get the context, but let me just put it here. The Pharisees are offended at the healing. The Pharisees are offended at the mat. The Pharisees are offended at Jesus for healing the guy on the Sabbath with the mat. And Jesus walks into the scenario and says, guess what? God works, I work, we both work, and today we're working. And the Pharisees are like, you, 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 I hate this guy. This guy ruins everything. This guy breaks all the rules. This guy does not accept our traditions. This guy is the problem. And the Pharisees translated, it's a weird response for us. They, they, they come in a weird response. Verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's the two things that got Jesus killed. As we head to Easter and Good Friday, you know the two things that got him killed? One is he broke all the Pharisees' rules, and secondly, he proclaimed to be God. 
Not only did he claim to be God, that he was equal with God. Him and God were on the same status. Jesus responds to them and gives them the main points this morning that I want to focus our attention on for the rest of our time. Not on the paralyzed man, not on the Pharisee's reaction, but on Jesus and his own words to the Pharisees. So we're going to pick up in verse um, 18 and continue our way through because I want you to understand this is not so much about the paralyzed man. That's a whole other sermon. This morning, I want you to understand Jesus's words when it comes to this idea of why did he heal? What power did Jesus have? How did Jesus do life? That's our big question this morning. That's what we're going to wrestle with in the rest of chapter 5. Jesus is going to tell them, if you want to do the Christian life, here's how it gets done. And this is amazing to me. So just strap in. I've been in love with this passage all week because this is incredible to see how Jesus responds to the Pharisees and the nitpickers and the guys who think they have it all together and the judgmental people in the world. And he says, check this out. This is how you live the Christian life. So we pick up verse 18. They were seeking to kill him. We just read that. Let's go to verse 19. And this is his response again to the Pharisees in the area of the temple. The dude's walking around with his mat. They're not happy. Pick up in verse 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, This is incredible. The son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. Highlight circle that verse, if you would, especially the part where it says, truly I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord. Let that sink in for just a second. This is not just a a prophet. This is not just Moses or Elijah receiving something. This is not Malachi receiving a word from God. This is the Son of God himself. This is Jesus. And Jesus says, I do nothing of my own accord. Nothing. I don't heal. I don't judge. There's nothing I do on my own accord. And then he goes into these four different points. We're not going to spend time heavily in these, but he gives four specific things that he mimics or that he does because the Father does. He just said, I only do what what I see the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. And then in verses 20 to 22, he gives four different things that he does because the Father does. Number one, he mimics the Father. Number two, the Father loves the Son, which is an interesting side note. He uses the word phileo, not agape. That's a whole interesting story that he uses the word brotherly love and not unconditional love. So Jesus loves because the Father loves the Son, so Jesus loves. And then 21, the Father raises the dead, so Jesus heals. Verse 22, Jesus is given authority to judge, and so he judges. Four quick things. He mimics, he loves, he raises the dead, so he heals, and he's given authority to judge, so he judges. And he only does it because the Father has shown him how to do it. That's the only reason he does it. And then he goes to this amazing verse in 24. It's like a John 3.16. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That is the key to all of this. I have come to show you how to have eternal life. I have come into this world not just to do magic tricks and miracles, right? Which some believe they were just magic tricks. They were just something that other prophets did. These were legitimate healings to prove that he was who he said he was. Healing the man on the Sabbath was proof that he did what the Father told him to do and he had the authority to do it. 
That if he said, you're healed, instantaneously he's healed. As the words leave his mouth, the body corrects and bones form into place and the healing happens. That's incredible. All he had to do is speak it and this man is walking. Think of all the things logistically and physically that had to happen for this man to stand up, take up his mat, and just go walking around town. He says, I heal because the Father gave me it. And here is the key. I have not come just to heal. That's impressive. Yes, I have come so that you may have eternal life. I have come so that you may accept the Father and live a Christian life. That's what I've come to do, is to come and show you how this whole Christian life works. And the first thing he does And telling us how the Christian life works in this passage is what? He says, the son could do nothing of his own accord. The first thing he does is he says, I am dependent upon the father. If you want to get the Christian life right, you got to work on your dependency. You got to work on your helplessness because that's how you live the life you're supposed to live. Jesus models and teaches us how to live helplessly. Isn't that crazy? God, keep us helplessly dependent upon you because that's how Jesus started this whole thing. He goes into this whole scenario of of how this all plays out from verses 21 to 29. But then again in verse 30, he picks it up again and he says this. I, highlight circle again, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He says, you you marvel at all this stuff. Don't get marveled at that. Marvel at the fact that the Son of God shows us how to live a helplessly dependent life on God himself. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I judge because the Father said I was allowed to judge. Does that make sense? He says, I only do what I do because the Father said I could do it. If the Father said I'm not allowed to do it, then I don't do it. To which all the fathers in the room are like, how do you make that work in my house? Like, just do what I ask you to do. Just pick up your shoes. That's all I want in life, right? And Jesus says, I do what the Father has called me to do, and I only do it because of him. And then he goes into this another four verses, another four stretch of fours. And he says, I want to show you that there's proof that I am Jesus. And he gives them four different proofs that he is Jesus. He gives them John the Baptist. He gives them Jesus' works and healings. He gives them the Father. And then he gives them the scripture, which is Moses. And so from 31 all the way through 40, he gives them these four different things. I am who I said I am, one, because the Father said it so, but secondly, I am who I say I am because there's witnesses to it. John the Baptist said I was him. Jesus' works and his healing, this man walking around, was proof that I am Jesus and Son of God. The Father himself said that I am the Son of God, and I am here on his behalf. And then he says, scriptures and Moses and all these things of the law point to me as being the Son of God, and there's witnesses and proof that I am who I am. Now, Why do I bring that up? Why does Jesus possibly bring that up? Because in our own ability, in our own strength, when we don't live helplessly, what do we do? We look for affirmations to remind other people and ourselves of who we are. Do you realize who I am? Do you know 
what I'm capable of? Do you know what I can do? And we, we toss everything back on me. Jesus is simply just tossing these witnesses in to remind them, uh, this is not just me. This is years and thousands of years of this being proof that I am who I said I am. But at the end of the day, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, but only as the Father tells me to. And then he goes in to verse 41. He says, I do not receive glory from people, which is an interesting word, right? What does he mean he doesn't receive glory? That's why we sing, isn't it? That's why we we do worship songs, so that we can glorify him. He's talking about how the Pharisees loved, loved the attention of people, loved it, craved it, needed it in their life. And he says, I'm not like that. I don't need your affirmation or I crumble. I don't need you to tell me I'm doing a good job by healing this guy. I don't need that. I already got that from my dad. My dad says we're cool, so I'm cool. I think so often in our Christian journey, we do so many Christian things for the wrong reasons. Let me pick on you just a little bit. I'm going to do it again later. Isn't it true? Sometimes we do what we do for the wrong reasons. We do it so that somebody sees our calendar. Oh, look how busy they are. Look how important they are. Look at that. They're going to Bible study. They told me they're going to Bible study. So they're going to Bible. Wow, look at that. Look how cool. Look how amazing. They're, they're, they're loving Jesus. We do things to receive the glory from other people. We clean up around the house or we do certain things to get noticed from our spouse or from our family. We do things to get noticed. And when the notice doesn't come, what do we do? We get bitter, right? Maybe it's just me. Maybe I do that, right? When I take out the trash, when I do the things around the house that matter and the things that are important, right? I want, it, I want people to, I'm like, slowly walking the thing out the door so everybody notices. Hey, guys, turn the TV off. You're going to want to watch this. Boop. Beautiful, right? You're welcome. And then I walk back. Right? Or, or laundry, you know, you take a laundry down, your counter, whatever it is, right? We, we like to receive recognition, and when we don't get it, we throw it back on the other person. Why didn't they notice? Probably have a sin in their life. <laughs> They're probably just messed up. I'll give them grace. I'll love them like Jesus does. They'll get to my point later. They'll get to how good I am later. I'll give them what they need. They got, they're, they're fine. I don't do this for applause. Jesus didn't come. Jesus didn't come to die his death so that people would go, wow. He already had it. He had it in his father who had this designed from the time created the father's applause was all he needed he knew he knew our hearts he knew that the moment we start applauding him and be like yes i love him we're gonna get him to turn and do something stupid and sinful he knew that but he loves us anyway <laughs> don't miss how big your jesus is don't make him small this morning like, he's just dependent upon our worship and praise, and if he doesn't get it, he's going to be crushed. They didn't sing loud enough today. I just feel really insecure. I really wish they would sing louder with more emotion in the hands. He's good. 
He doesn't need you. I love you, but he doesn't need you. He's good on his own. He's not codependent on anything. I will not receive glory from people. And for some reasons, the Pharisees, exact opposite. They love it. They had to be respected. They had to be recognized. They had to enforce the law. They, they saw this guy and had to say something. It wasn't like the awkward thing of, should we say something? I think he's breaking the rules. Should we say anything? I don't want to say anything. They specifically said, no, we're going to say something. We're going to call him out for everybody. Hey, dude, why are you walking around with your mat? That's illegal. Here's your Pharisee ticket. Have a good day. We did a good thing. And they walked back high-fiving each other. Way to go, bro. You totally got him. That was amazing. Way to love the law. Way to do it right. Be in control and being praised. And they had that hero complex, right? Look at me. Look at what I'm doing. I'm that important. I'm that good. Now, again, we're good in church of covering that up, right? We're good at saying, no, 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 I don't need any recognition. But the moment you go home and you start vetting to whoever it is at home, I really wish they would have said something. Do they not see how much I do around here? You got a hero problem. You got a hero complex. And, 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 and we all do it. We all have it. Look at me. Look at what I'm doing. They got to notice how much I'm serving. No, not Jesus. We get praised and we like it and we, we can dwell in it too much. And we can do it even in the good things. Reading your Bible, not doing that sin you always do, going to church, reading through your Bible in a year, great things, awesome things. I encourage you to do them. But there's always an edge there's always a razor's edge to this where it starts to kind of turn into a look what I am doing. And God says, I don't need applause. I don't need any of it. He lives this idea of a helpless life and he models it. And the question is, if Jesus could do nothing on his own, how much more should we model that ourselves? If Jesus himself said, I do nothing on my own accord, how much more should we say, I can't do it on my own? My fear for you and my fear for Community Bible Church, my fear for this community, is that we start to wander back into moralistic living and not Jesus living. Let me say that again. My fear and my prayer of why I'm praying, keep us helplessly dependent, is my fear is that we'll wander back into moralistic living, not Christian life living. And there is a large, big difference. Moralistic living says that there is good and bad, and I'm going to always kind of try my best to work my way to the good. I'm going to try my best to not yell at my neighbor again. I'm going to do my best to not cuss out my coworkers tomorrow, even though they deserve it, right? I'm going to do my best to live a Christian life. I'm going to do my best, and hopefully, at the end of the day, enough good's going to wear out, and I'm going to get my way into heaven because I've done enough good things. You know what the Christian life says? Not to disappoint you this morning, but the reality is, the Bible says again and again, do you know how much good you have in you? You know how much good I have in me? The Bible even says the, the best that we do is only because Jesus is in us. You, I love you. 
you and I both have so many things wrong with us. There is no way, no way that we could morally work our way into salvation. That's called a works-based. There's no way we can do it. There is not enough good things you do. Even if you smile and wave at every neighbor you pass, doesn't matter. The Bible says that we are all condemned because of the sin nature within us. You do nothing of your own accord that is good. The only good you do is Jesus. The Bible says that we were dead in our sins, and when Christ comes into us, he makes us alive. How much action, how much ability does a dead person have? Let's just be honest, right? If you were to ask a dead person to mow your lawn, is it going to get done? I don't mean to be rude, but, you know, the zombie's kind of like walking around, like, right? That's, that's not going to happen. Dead people don't mow lawns. Dead people don't love people to life. Dead people don't show up to church. Dead people, you know what I mean? They're just not able to do it on their own accord. Yes, those who are struggling and finding Jesus, yes, they come. But this is ultimately because God has pushed them into this, 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 this desire. It's all in him. The more we try and live a moralistic life versus a Christian life, it's like presenting ragweeds and dandelions to your parents when you were five or four, right? The sentiment's good. But again, thank you. I love these dead weeds that we pull out of our yard. I love you, right? We mean it with the intention's good, but, but they are what they are. They're weeds. And my question this morning is, I, or not question, the comment this morning is, I, I don't want us to get locked into just going back to living a moralistic life. Because the culture of Canal Fulton, the culture of Tusla, the, the culture of the surrounding area is, I'm a good moral person. I pull myself up by the bootstraps and I make life work. Do you need help? Nope, I am good. Can I help you with your house? Nope, I'm good. Can I help? Nope, I'm good. I'm a good family man. I'm a good dad. I'm a good husband. I'm a good wife. We do all the good things and we're right good people. The truth is, anyone in the world, can curb an action, not do something, and try really hard to make it to heaven. Everybody can do that. Everybody can try really hard to make it to heaven. That's not what Jesus is asking you to do as a follower of Jesus Christ. Can we just be clear on that this morning? He is not asking you to work your way into heaven. Read your Bible 20 times, and then maybe you'll make it in. Get on the right reading plan, maybe you'll make it in. It's not what he's asking you to do. You know why? This is going to sound weird. It's too easy. Too easy? Are you kidding me? Do you know how early I get here at church? I don't want to come some mornings, you know? It's early. What do you mean it's easy to live the Christian life that way, moralistically? It's easy because anybody can do it. He's asking you to go a whole different way and to live a godly way. Galatians chapter 3, let's go back here. Let's put it in our context as if he's talking to us. Oh, foolish communionites. I don't even know. I, don't, I had to throw an in in there because it's a Galatian, Galatia. Communityites, whatever. Oh, foolish communions. 
Who has tricked you? Who has cast a spell on you? Who has put you under their control? O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Galatians 2, 3. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Did you do it because you did enough morally good things to accept Jesus and Jesus was kind of, he was just so impressed with your life that he's like, Woo! Did you see them? Let's give them salvation. They've earned it today. That was awesome, right? Did you do it because of that? No. He says you received it by the grace of Jesus Christ in your life, by hearing with faith. He says, are you so foolish? Are you so stupid that having begun by the Spirit, you are now being perfected by the flesh? Do you want to go back to moralistic way of living when when I'm offering you something different? Paul says, look at Jesus. Just like Jesus was helplessly dependent upon God, the Father, so should our lives be. Helplessly dependent on him. We don't like it. We don't like being helpless. We don't want acceptance to accept help. We we like to handle things on our own. We can do it ourselves. But here's the problem. The gospel, and this is a words out of the book of A Praying Life. He says, the gospel, God's free gift of grace in Jesus, only works when we realize we don't have it all together. The gospel, God's free gift of grace in Jesus, only works when we realize we don't have it all together. And the author of A Praying Life says this, the same is true about prayer. This is great. The very thing we are allergic to, accepting help, the very thing we are allergic to, our helplessness, is what makes prayer work. It works because we are helpless. This morning, I don't know how you've come in, but this morning, I'm here to reassure all of us that doing good things doesn't equal salvation. And here's what often can happen in our lives if we just think doing enough good things gets us to heaven. One, we don't become helplessly dependent upon Jesus. We just kind of pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and we gain our own salvation. We work ourselves into this place where we feel like we're worthy of salvation. But maybe even worse than that, it's this visual that is found in the book of Praying Life. I want to steal some of it because it's a good analogy and a good visual to put in front of you this morning. And the visual is this. Let's say somebody accepts Jesus for the very first time. And they are now in Christ. Full access to everything Jesus has. Everything God has offered, he now gives to us. We accept Jesus Christ. And as we accept Jesus Christ, what often happens, and I love this, is that a lot of people have a lot of questions. I accepted Jesus. What does that mean? I accepted Jesus how's my life supposed to change? Am I supposed to read the Bible? What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to make this Christian life work? And what can often happen is we can see the cross kind of like this, kind of a makeshift little thing that we've kind of built on the knowledge that we have of the cross and of what Jesus is asking us to do. And we can look at the cross and we can kind of keep it small. Let me explain that. Meaning when I look at it, I can think it's just there to keep me in line. It's like a good parole officer. He's just there to call me out when I sin. And that's what church is. It's just there to to keep me in line, to make sure I do the right things. 
And we can have a very small view of the cross. And when we have a small view of the cross, our sin looks a lot smaller as well. Here's the thing I truly believe. As you work in this new relationship with Jesus Christ, I believe that sin can actually conceal your sin. The enemy can conceal your sin to make it not seem as bad as. Well, it's not as bad as so-and-so. Well, at least I got this part handled. And then what starts to happen, if you've been in church for a long time, is you keep a small view of Jesus in front of you your entire life, and you try and do all the moralistic things, and you try and do the right thing, and you hope and pray that this small little Jesus, this small little cross will get you into heaven because I'm just living my life and doing things. Here's what happens, though. Is as you have a small view of your sin, and you have a small view of the cross, you have a small view of who Jesus is. He's just a guy. He's just a guy that lived, but I don't have any relationship with him. I don't do as he says to do. When we have just a small view of him, then our sins become small. Follow me. And then our egos become big. Well, at least I didn't sin like so-and-so. Well, at least I got this handled. I can do this. I can do this. And then what happens is you see people in church that have been in church for a long time, and you think they're mature because they're bragging about all these things they're doing right. In this small little window, and we think that maturity in Christ is doing more, doing more, doing more, doing more. Jesus says, when you change your perspective, what happens is your size of the cross changes. Because the more you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ the more you find out who Jesus is, the more your sin starts to bug you. The more you start to see, I've tried doing all this stuff on my own and it's worked well for a season. But the more you get to know Jesus and the more he starts to tell you that it's only through Jesus that you're saved, the more you're kind of like, well, I sinned here, I sinned here, I yelled at them, I didn't do this, I didn't do this. How on earth am I supposed to ever make it to heaven? How am I ever supposed to live up to that large of a list? I can't do that. That's impossible to live the Christian life. To which I say, you finally get it. You finally arrived at the truth. It is impossible to live the Christian life on your own. When you see your sin as big, you need a big Jesus to handle all the stuff. And when you start to see how big your Jesus is, the more you can go to him and say, I want to be helplessly dependent upon you. I want to get out of bed every single day and say, if it's not you moving, I got nothing to offer my wife. I got nothing to offer my kids. I got nothing to offer my coworkers. I got zip. If it's not Jesus, I got zero to offer. When we see the cross as small, our sins are small and minor, and we need a small Jesus to fix our small sins. 
When we start living as Christ lives, we see that our sins are far more. We start to recognize those small things. Why am I always on edge with my kids? Why am I angry at them in my heart? It doesn't ever come out, but I'm always angry in my heart. What is that about? I need Jesus. I need him to fix this anger thing in me. I need him to figure, to figure out the selfishness in me. And as we do this, as we have a bigger picture of who Jesus is in our life, Galatians chapter 4, 6 and 7, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. What do we do? We cry to the God who is our Father, and we say, I want to do what the Father does. Like Jesus says in 19, I say to you, I only do what the Father does. And in verse 30, I can do nothing of my own accord, but only as I see the Father doing. When we see Jesus as big, then we have no other course but to say, I need the Father. The idea this morning is not to rely on your own strength, abilities, and plans, but instead to distrust your own abilities, strengths, and plans. Your ability is to trust in him who has all the strength, all the abilities, and makes your plans. No one else, nothing else. You can do nothing outside of Jesus. Only him. And I love that Jesus uses the word Abba. We're going to close here with a song together, and so I'm going to have the team come up. But let me just kind of reiterate to you that Jesus says, I am who I say I am. You can do nothing outside of me. And to model it, I'm going to call God by this word Abba, this word Father that says I'm dependent like a child is dependent on his father. He says, because you are a son, God has sent a spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Do you realize this is kind of a fun nerd out fact? This word Abba in this passage in Galatians is not a Greek word. Abba is a Hebrew word that never got translated into Greek. Do you realize that? Paul thought enough of this word that he says, I don't want to translate it into the Greek word for father. I want to keep it as Abba because that's what Jesus would pray. Abba. Abba is the first word the prodigal son says on his return. Abba is the first word in the Lord's prayer. Abba is the first thing Jesus prays in the garden. Abba is the first thing he says on the cross and Abba is the last thing he says from the cross. I can only do what daddy has shown me and allowed me to do. I can only do what Abba has told me to do. It's Jesus showing us all, me included this morning. You can do nothing. So just run to Jesus. Just go to dad and say, I can't do this. I know. That's not ever how it's supposed to work. Become helplessly dependent upon me. As we journey towards Easter, my prayer is this for our church. Abba, Father, that you would keep us helplessly dependent upon you. Let me pray for you this morning. God, we have nowhere to go. Honestly, we have nowhere to turn because even our best efforts are not you. So God, I pray this morning, just in the quiet right now, that that you would speak. God, if there are some in the room who have said, I've tried to live the moral life, I've tried to do it all on my own and it's not working, you'd remind them it's not supposed to work that way. For those in this room who maybe have put their faith in moralistic things, I'm a Christian because I do the right things, would you remind them getting saved is not about doing the right things. Getting saved is about surrendering our lives to Jesus. 
For those who maybe haven't done that, I pray this morning would be their morning. I'm tired of doing it on my own. I'm tired of living my life trying to measure up. I want Jesus. God, as we close out, I pray that uh, you would communicate to those in this room what you need to communicate. Keep us dependent upon you because there's nothing good in us, only you. Would you please stand with us as we close out this morning?